And so we return. It's episode 74 of the Geek Rex podcast, and we fly off into outer space uh, looking at Christopher Nolan's ninth film, Interstellar. Uh, we've got a, our pretty much our whole team. We're, we're minus Shane this time around, but I've got Harper, Cal, Hannah, and new guest, Mr. Andrew Jameson from the other side of the pond in England. How are you, sir? Fantastic. Doing really well. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, Andrew and I have known each other for a while. Uh, he's the biggest Nolan fan I know, and I would be remiss if I didn't have a podcast that was Nolan-based and didn't have him on it. Uh, it would not be right. So, And I think the last time we talked, we talked about The Dark Knight Rises, right, Andrew? Yes, it was. It was. Yeah, so uh, yeah, it was, uh, it's been two years since we've actually physically talked. Uh, that's yes, uh, fun times. Um, so, Interstellar, this podcast is going to be uh, not spoiler-free, sorry. Uh, I feel like tiptoeing around this movie in terms of its details, anything could be a spoiler. So, we're just going to say, if you haven't seen this movie, or and you have an interest in doing so, pull the plug now. Um, otherwise, uh, be ready to uh, listen to a lot of details in, in serious depth about uh, this film. So... Just to give sort of a, a broad overview uh, of this movie, it's more or less Christopher Nolan's 2001, Solaris, whatever, his his love letter to the science fiction genre that he grew up with. And it centers on Cooper, which is Matthew McConaughey's character, who is currently living in an apocalyptic like blight in the mid uh, Midwest, I assume Texas, maybe Nebraska, something like that. It's kind of it's kind of un- unstated, but we'll assume Texas since I think that was the case in the original script. Anyhow, uh, due to sur- supernatural circumstances, he and his daughter uh, Murph are led to a hidden base, which ends up being the remnants of NASA. And because of Coop's background and because of prior disturbances of this type, they felt it was serendipitous to send Coop along with a number of other astronauts that include Anne Hathaway's Dr. Brand and David Gyasi's character and Wes Bentley's character up into space to attempt to find a new home for uh, the folks living back on Earth. That's a pretty decent summary, right? <laughs> for, you got it. For a movie that's three hours long almost. <laughs> I think I, I think I nailed it. All right. So let's talk overall opinions of this movie first. The way I want to do this is give me a thumbs up or thumbs down and let me know if it met your expectations, exceeded them, or did not at all. And, and you can elaborate on that if you want, uh, but without going into too much detail about the movie. I'm going to start actually with Hannah, ladies first. Um, what did you think? Thumbs up, and it met my expectations. Excellent. All right. Andrew, our special guest. Um, thumbs up completely, and it completely exceeded my expectations. All right. Harper? Uh, thumbs up, and uh, if my expectations hadn't been so high, I would say exceed, but met my expectations. Cal? Uh, thumbs up. I think it was a little below expectations for me, but uh, I think like like Harper, I had pretty high expectations. It's going to be the most boring podcast ever, by the way. <laughs> I was hoping for one dissenter. And, I mean, I've been pretty vocal over the past weekend as to how much I enjoyed it as well. So thumbs up. Well, well, I say exceeded expectations. I don't know what my expectations were, actually. So it's kind of a loaded question for me to ask myself. Um, Met, I guess I will say, because I happen to enjoy his work a lot as a filmmaker. So um, let's talk about the beginning parts with the pre-launch segment, segment, which sort of sets the background for this movie. Um, We open up with a blight on planet Earth. And it opens up with a bit of a, a bit of documentary footage. This sort of sets the background, and it's actually pulled specifically from Ken Burns' The Dust Bowl documentary, along with some cutting in uh, from I think Diane Weist, who I think played the uh, older version of Murph's character. So I'm curious that documentary footage, um, Cal, is that the kind of thing that uh, worked for you as a delivery device for information? I don't think it was necessary. Um, I, I understood why it happened and I appreciated that they brought it back at the end and kind of made it, um, uh, made it feel a little more natural because I thought that, uh, Nolan actually did a really good job at setting up how awful the, the world had become 
in just just by showing us. I think that he did a great job of showing us this. For instance, you said uh, you thought the movie took place in Texas. I thought it took place in New York. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, because of the Yankees. Mm-hmm. Because they're and I believe the where they were watching the Yankees play. The background said "Home of the World Famous New York Yankees." And it was just New York State had become so blight-ravaged, it looked like rural Texas. Um, And it's just little things like that. I thought they did a great job at setting that up. And so the documentary footage kind of uh, felt felt like playing to the cheap seats a little. Well, let's talk about that rural setting then, Uh, sort of uh, as as a part of this discussion with the documentary footage. Um, I mean, one of the things that kind of struck me is that in end of the world scenarios, we don't see a lot of the the middle of nowhere. And I don't know whether it was New York, whether it was Texas or whether where it was specifically. I mean, where they're growing corn, I guess you could maybe grow corn anywhere, uh, but mostly in the Midwest. Um, you know, is that a setting that uh, you found interesting? And Andrew, I mean, you don't even live over here in the States, so I- I'm kind of curious how that, that local color affected you. I think the return to kind of, when you go into these kind of rural environments in terms of the Dust Bowl era and everything like that, it almost takes you back to kind of Depression America. And I think when you're working with this story, where it's kind of about what people have forgotten in terms of being pioneers, in terms of wanting to move forward, to go back to a kind of more traditional kind of farming-based era where everything isn't kind of urbanized and it's kind of has a huge kind of cityscape that you associate with science fiction. It, I think being within that setting, it means you can then point towards what is kind of missing from humanity just by setting it in that kind of, with that kind of rural um, kind of almost, I don't know this because I'm not, not American, but in terms of almost like more homely setting. to then, So when you do bring in all the technological advancements, it's kind of more, it's less um, esoteric than it would have been if you had kind of set this in LA or if you'd set it in New York or something like that, I think. So I think that worked really well. Harper, what about you, man? I, I agree. I think those are two really good points um, from you guys that uh, I think the rural aspect actually reminded me of um, the original Solaris and that it takes place in this very kind of backwards area and then suddenly they're in space. Um, and that, that was very much the way this movie was too. Um, and I, I think the documentary style uh, start was really interesting. It led a lot of credibility to the movie and um, that I think that first act on earth was very, um, very grounded and very subtle. And I, I think there was a lot of restraint there that I really respected and there, and that there wasn't this big, you know, um, uh, voiceover narration to start the movie that explains everything or, or, um, you know, we don't, we don't start in space and pan down to earth. It's like, it's very, um, familial and, uh, and rural and grounded in a way that's really draws you in and, and subtly kind of clues you into exactly what's going on. And that, I thought that was really interesting. And, and I liked that better than another other routes he maybe could have taken. Yeah, I agree with Harper. It was a nice kind of exposition dump, basically. And I thought the setting did a good job of not dating the movie too much mm-hmm. because it seems like one of the biggest mistakes science fiction movies make is picking a date in the future where things like this are going to happen and aiming to fill in the landscape to match that date, which certainly if this was taking place in a city, you would kind of expect to see both the advancements into the future and then the decay backwards from there. And it would be really difficult to do, I feel like. Whereas setting this in, you know, a farmhouse in the country, we have no idea if this is like 30 years in the future, 100 years in the future. I mean, it's completely broad, which I like. You know, uh, I think we're only a few years away from Blade Runner, actually. I think that's set in 2019 at this point. Right, exactly. And that's one of the biggest mistakes of Blade Runner is you look at it now and you're like, okay, really (laughs) off, you know, really off. Alternate timeline uh, of uh, we haven't gotten those robots yet, those androids. But I don't think they mentioned date at all in this movie, and they don't have to because because of the setting they picked. Well, it's a technologically frozen time period, I would say. I mean, it's it's as Andrew kind of said, it's it looks it looks Dust Bowl era, and I think that's on purpose. Um, but it looks like we're at 2014 frozen for like 50 years. Yeah, the best I could do was extrapolate that Michael or not Michael Caine, um, John Lithgow's character was from our generation okay. based on his speech probably yeah. and that everything went backwards from there potentially, but who knows? He could have been from three generations ahead of us or four. It doesn't really matter. I, I really liked it. It reminded me of one of the, um, 
uh, more ambitious, lower but much lower budget sci-fi films recently that I really liked, which was a uh, Looper, uh, Ryan Johnson's movie from a couple years ago. Yeah. yeah. yeah which I thought similarly did a very good job by making use of a non-traditional setting of uh, amping up the drama without giving us something we've seen before. This was, this was an apocalypse that felt like it could actually happen. It felt very, very chilling, very playing off of uh, the modern fears and anxieties that we have about technology and progress and all that. Uh, the fight between science and religion that's happening in our country right now. And uh, I thought they did a great job of turning those anxieties, I guess, into uh, a, a literal apocalypse. And it, would, it wouldn't work in a big city. It wouldn't feel the same. There's, there's, speaking of the apocalypse itself, I mean, the blight is kind of an ill-defined uh, threat. And probably by design, I have to assume... Um, but that has led to some criticism from some circles regarding um, does that take away humanity's I don't know, immediacy uh, in terms of dealing with a threat? Does that is that you know sometimes no one takes takes some takes some hits for the political subtext of his films from some circles. Um, do you sense that that's problematic at all, um, or uh, do you find that the threat? should be nebulous for a reason. I mean, is it, is it the kind of thing that should be kept fairly open-ended to get the plot moving? I'm not trying to have a leading answer here. I'm just kind of, well, I kind of want you to sort of see, sort of see both sides of that argument and see what you think might work best. And Andrew, I'm kind of curious. You've got your thoughts about the actual plot maneuver maneuverability here. I think the key thing is in terms of the politicization, I mean, the key thing to recognize is I think when they hunt down the Indian surveillance drone, you get the kind of impression that this is a, this is going on all over the world. So that drone's been up there for a long time and even mentions that other, that the Indian military went down 10 years ago, the same as the Americans did. So I think, I think in terms of that, it is the main plots of kind of the way the earth is crumbling and everything like that, because it's, you almost feel like you're on the periphery of it for the first half of the movie. So when I first saw it, I was kind of thinking you, you haven't hit me over the head with what's going on, but yet I do feel a sense that this is kind of completely, that this is deadly to the future of the planet. And I, I think when people raise the more political um, elements in terms of what Nolan did in The Dark Knight Rises and things like that. You have to think, because you're writing in terms of what you see on a day-to-day basis, you can't, those ideas are always going to be prevalent throughout human history. So you can't really kind of, I don't think, I mean, I read this a lot over here. Loads of critics have said that it's kind of, this is Pax Americana, this is America just going off to save the world. But I don't think that he ever hits you over the head with that sense of, this is America, this is what we do, and it, I think it's more, it's more based around the characters, I would say. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the things that actually made the movie really beautiful for me, um, is that I feel like it's almost post-political. Um, I feel like he went out of his way, but not, not in a way that I really necessarily felt his hand, but out of his way to not address... You know, this was not a, 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 a green problem. You know, this is not a... Um, you know, it's not a humans have been selfish problem. It's just, you know, our earth has reached the the end of its lifespan or, you know, we're about to go into another ice age or, or you know, something like that. It was a more natural thing. Um, and and uh, like you said, Andrew, I don't I don't feel like it was meant to be about Americans or America in general. I, I think I think it's more about human beings, which is one of the things I really love about the movie. It, it you know, brought out a lot of that kind of um, uh, pride in being part of a race that has accomplished so much, you know? Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it's a little more universal than that, which is why I like that the, the blight is such a generic, um, problem. It's not like this very specific and explained thing. Yeah. And I think, I think my view on this is colored by having read the original script that Jonathan Nolan wrote before Christopher Nolan was involved. But I think, I think actually it's just an artifact of what the original script intended to do, which the ending is completely different in the original that Jonathan Nolan had envisioned, which is that we go to this other planet and collect samples of this kind of ice creature and we bring them back to our kind of decimated world, which has turned into an ice palace, basically. And that creature thrives in our new earth. 
And so it, it becomes about, you know, the earth is evolving and now supports a different kind of life form. It's not been ruined or destroyed. It's, it's changed naturally and humanity is no longer a good fit for it. And so I think when Christopher Nolan tried to kind of adapt that script, rather than introducing a brand new element of, you know, humans aren't treating our environment right, Earth doesn't want us anymore, he decided to take a simpler approach and just make this about the evolution of the planet, which I don't think means he thinks humans don't pollute the Earth. I think it was just a choice. I, I, I might disagree on the on the idea that it's not about America, though. I, I actually think that you have to sort of, like, recognize like how bad we've treated our space program here in the States. And I, I don't know what, what the case is, you know, with some of our, with some of our foreign friends and their own programs, but you know, we've had politicians un- cut the knees out of NASA, you know, years and years ago. And I feel like that's sort of the, one of the centralized points that um, at least Jonathan Nolan is definitely trying to push mm-hmm. because uh, you know, in interviews he's been asked about it and he's like, well, the problem is that we're not fucking going to space. He literally says that verbatim. And I think that like what Andrew said earlier, you know, it's that explorer aspect and yeah, it's a worldwide problem that we all have to deal with. But in the United States, it's like a political issue. And I feel like the pollution stuff, the climate change stuff that some people are, are, are bringing up, as an issue with the film, uh, you know, I, I that I don't want to say it's nitpicking, but it's it's more. I, I don't think that's what they were intending. Uh, I think instead they were intending a criticism of the politicians who have ended NASA and the exceptionalism that came about in the '60s from that program and the moon landing and the like. I mean, that's why they had somebody who was the silly person who said, "Well, that those were faked," in a Stanley Kubrick kind of wink and nod. Not <laughs> reference, you know. So I that's one of the things that I, I think is really the underlying like theme. But Cal, I don't know, man. Maybe maybe you have a different take on it altogether. No, I actually agree with you. I mean, I I think that it was very political in the way that it discussed how people stopped seeing Earth basically stopped seeing anything that wasn't an immediate solution to an immediate fix as a um as worth pursuing. And I've seen so many people try to argue against space exploration saying, well, you know, we've got all these problems on earth. What, why should I care? What's out there for us? And you try to explain to them, you know, I mean, well, pushing to go to space invented a hundred new technologies and gave us new ways to look at the world, helped us understand different things about communication, about radio waves and about all these different kind of um, uh, all these different kind of uh, inventions that have shaped the last hundred years, but they don't care because they don't see it as an immediate solution to an immediate fix. And so I don't think the apocalypse was politicized, which I liked. I I liked that it was just, I I think as Hannah said, earth evolving out of us. Um. But I do think that our reaction to it, what what ultimately was going to doom humanity, was very political and very on purpose, I thought. I think that the key thing to remember is, even if it is politicized in terms of America, then I think you guys are kind of entitled to have that politicization of it. Because if you look at the moon landings, if you look at the development of the space programs over the years it has been focused on America. So for, for a director to kind of focus on that and say, and for the story writers to focus on that and say, we should be developing these technologies, I think you're perfectly entitled. So it's almost like a, it's almost like a French person saying that they like snails, if you know what I mean. It's kind of, <laughs> that's, it's, it is part of your, it's endemic to your culture. So I think to embrace that and kind of want to push it forward is a crucial part of the script to me. And ironically, you know, talking about political, I think I think Christopher Nolan actually smoothed down some of the political subtext in Jonathan Nolan's script because in the original version, China's space program saves the day and not America. It's due to the research that they've they've accomplished that humanity survives. And I think maybe that was just a little too contentious and so he cut that, but it was an interesting point that Jonathan Nolan was making. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I um I find that the dichotomy of, of the space program being like a conservative and liberal sort of uh, philosophy interesting because so many of like the space heroes of the like the 1960s, guys like Chuck Yeager and, and Buzz Aldrin, they're very 
you know, conservative heroes. I mean, they're they're very they're very uh, well dressed, clean haircut guys, very military military types. Um, but it's a liberal issue almost, like the idea of we need to spend more money to explore and build up science a bit. So it's almost like this funny dichotomy where I could see somebody saying like, oh, you're you're promoting a conservative hero, but for a liberal cause. And that's, that's funny to me. It almost escapes politics because in the United States, typically the right wing faction supports spending on military and in a way nasa is almost an extension of that in this particular you know issue and so i I think it's one of those things where whether you're liberal or or conservative your views just differ depending on how you think of it uh so I, i you know i do think there are political statements here but i don't think they are democrat or republican i think they're broader than that so um, we move on into like the exploration segments, and we'll get a little more critical as we dig in towards the end here about things that maybe did or did not work um, for the early parts. But pre, basically everything that's pre-Black Hole, and there's a lot of 2001 imagery, I think, and that's where maybe Nolan is wearing uh, his influences on his sleeve particularly. Um, but there's also some of the most wonderful sequences imaginable. Hannah and I saw it in IMAX, like true IMAX. Uh, 70 millimeter. Uh, yeah, me too today. Me too today. Over the Odeon, right? Yeah, it was spectacular. Yeah, my yeah. Well, well, so talk to me about that, Andrew. I mean, did um, do you do you feel like the uh, the 2001 imagery worked for you? I mean, did you did you feel like it was original enough? I mean, what what? I mean, obviously you said it was spectacular. So, uh, did you have any particular favorite sequences that really stood out? I think when they go to the first planet, that's where they see the waves. That really just hit me with a ton of bricks. But I think in terms of the visual um, stimuli that's there, some of it did fall down in some of the miniature work, I thought. There were moments when they were docking, when, when, when Matt Damon comes into it, where I was thinking, this miniature work does not look good. Like, some of it, I, that was my only kind of misgiving with the whole film, was that kind of some of the miniature work wasn't good enough. And I think 2001 is a good reference, but I think most critics have kind of thought, or oh, he mentioned 2001 as an influence, so therefore they've kind of gone for it, when mostly, most of the sequences in terms of when they were discussing things reminded me of um, Contact. So I was watching. I was watching the movie, thinking, "Okay, contact." <laughs> so I think he does wear it on his sleeve. And in terms of the almost, I think the interior of the spaceship, the way the space helmets are shot, that all reminds us of two thousand and one completely. But I think where you have to lose two thousand and one is the fact when you watch two thousand and one, there's hardly any dialogue in the entire movie. There's hardly any dialogue whatsoever. So it's not too talky, but I think visually it's there. But I think the kind of when though when that's in place i think the vision is completely christopher nolan's i mean i think the the 2001 thing because he's mentioned it so many times i think people are too willing to kind of oh yes the influences are there but clearly to me i think even didn't the producer of this movie produce contact as well and kind of that's that that was my main kind of thoroughfare through the narrative i think McConaughey was in both too, actually. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. forgot about that. Uh, Andrew, it's funny you mentioned the um, the docking scene, and actually that that for me stands out as the most perfect scene in the entire movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the scene where that you know after Matt Damon basically blows the hull by trying to dock incorrectly, and then Matthew McConaughey's character decides to try to dock without you know while it's spinning. Um, the tension in that scene and the way it looked and that really loud pounding organ music. It was like, I was holding my breath for like two minutes. It was so spectacular. The strange thing is in each theater that I've seen the film in everybody, everyone to the left and right of me all had their hands in their mouth. (laughs) So everyone's kind of leaned forward kind of in anticipation of what was going to happen next. And did you guys jump when Matt Damon gets kind of blown up? I did, yeah. Oh, my word. I nearly had a heart attack. I'm only 32, (laughs) but I jumped out of my skin at that moment. Um, Yeah, that scene was was pretty intense. Um, I I, I thought about it afterwards that, uh, you know, people use the term white knuckle. (laughs) But I, I actually found myself, you know, really, you know, my fists were clenched and I was really tense and I didn't even really notice it until afterwards how just kind of involved with it I was. Um, but I, I think the from the visual standpoint of the 2001 uh, um, comparisons, I think in some aspects are, are pretty valid in that 
the way he kind of holds these shots and just kind of lets the grandeur of it kind of sink in a little bit. Um, for me, yeah. it was is the moment when you see the wormhole uh, up close, and uh, and it wasn't Event Horizon, although they explained it that same way. Um, but uh, <laughs> I, I'm a person who you know every couple of years I, I find myself trying to read up on some of the kind of current theories on, on black holes and things like that is I find it really interesting. And, uh, that was really, really fascinating and impressive, uh, the way he portrayed that. And it's a really abstract thing to portray, you know, a portal to another part of the universe. That's also a 3d object. It's not a hole. Um, and that, that was kind of visually the moment when I was just totally awestruck and, um, you know, I was enjoying the movie up to that point, but that was when I just totally got sucked in for good. Cal. Yeah, I um, I mean the the 2001 comparisons, even beyond uh, Nolan himself making them, make sense to me. I I actually recently saw 2001 for the first time, um, uh, just about two months ago in 70 millimeter, actually. And uh, what really struck with me was um, Kubrick's patience, his, his willingness to hold a shot completely dialogue free for sometimes minutes at a time. And Nolan doesn't quite have that patience. Uh, I think Nolan did a great job, though, with the scale and the space traffic. The, uh, the docking sequence uh, is, is, is that you guys brought up is a prime example of what Nolan does well. Um, it was just, it was incredibly tense. It was beautifully shot. It was very simple but very powerful. And that, that to me has always been Nolan's strengths is when he can really boil down to the core of something and find the tension at that core. Um, and he, he managed to do it a number of times. There, there was just some gorgeous imagery. I think for me, the moment that stood out the most was uh, like, just, I think it was just, it was only about 30 seconds, I think of um, their, their ship kind of swirling across uh, Saturn's ring. And I thought that was just gorgeous. It was, uh, for, for me, I was, I was very, very pleasantly surprised at how long he held that and how, how relaxed the movie was at that point. The score probably paid a, played a bit of a role there, too. I mean, I, I realized the score was very overpowering in many, in many respects, especially during takeoff and a couple <laughs> other moments. Um, but I, I noticed sort of a, this strain of Strauss coming out of Zimmer, uh, in a couple of these moments where I thought, man, this is really, this is very alien 2001, you know, the isolation of space. And I, and I felt like that helped set the mood in a way that uh, as good as those shots were, it, they, they were impacted very highly by the music. Sometimes the music got in the way, perhaps. But uh, any of the outer space scenes, particularly those long shots past Saturn and through the wormhole, uh, very, very impressive stuff, at least at least for my, my side of things. And Harper, let me ask you, man, as a musician, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm curious what your thoughts are on, on the overall score. Um, I, I'm really interested to see it in a non-IMAX theater so I can get that uh, a different experience because I've heard differing things about the mix being better or worse in IMAX. Uh, so I'd be curious to see how that works out. Um, I thought the music was a really brilliant step um, to doing something different. It actually reminded me a lot of a uh, um, Philip Glass, like Koana Scotsy type score. Um, that's very, very simple, um, but very powerful uh, without, you know, it, it didn't necessarily have the kind of grandiose strings and full orchestra that kind of um, pushes you to feel a certain way that it was, it was so much simpler. It was just kind of a, uh, I don't know, pure, pure tone and pure feeling, uh, which was really interesting. And um, uh, just in general, the mix of the movie, uh, and this is a Nolan thing in general, is that he, he mixes this music way, way too loud, absurdly loud, um, to the point where you can't hear people sometimes. Um, that's a thing with Nolan movies for me anyways, where I, I, there's always one or two pieces of dialogue that I don't understand in the first or second viewings, and I have to go back and see them again. Uh, yeah, Rises. Yeah, absolutely. Dark Knight Rises is one of the most poorly mixed movies of all time, um, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. Uh, but anyways, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's an issue, but it didn't in IMAX the just the power of it, just because you know the ridiculous speakers they have in IMAX theaters and everything. Uh, 
you felt like you were in a a, uh, a rocket taking off, <laughs> which uh, I think is a good thing. I mean, that's when you can provide a physical uh, sensation that goes along with the movie. That always kind of links you in even more. So I, I thought that was impressive, uh, despite the issues with the mix. So um, one of the, uh, the the things that have been really highlighted about this movie is how it kind of showcases a couple of longstanding weaknesses in Christopher Nolan's storytelling. And one of them is that he's clearly working on and another is very much on display. So let's talk about the latter at first, since we're in the science portion of this film. Uh, exposition. And a lot of people have complained about the, the heavy level of exposition. And we compare it to 2001, where there's literally none, almost. I mean, it is a almost dialogue-free film in many respects. Did you find the exposition intrusive, Cal? Uh, honestly, I never did. Um, part of it's that because it, was, it was all involved in a field that I find terribly interesting. I mean, the... The, the science of it was fascinating uh, when it was on point and still really cool, even when it was just blatantly making stuff up. Um, so yeah, the exposition from, from that never really bothered me. And I think that he dialed, dialed back on the exposition in uh, setting and character uh, a considerable amount from some of his previous films. I mean, uh, as much as I love Inception, I, I'd be shocked if there were more than about two minutes of the entire movie that aren't exposition. <laughs> so yeah, I, it, it, it honestly never bothered me. I, ne- I never got the same feeling that I got from some of his previous movies that everyone was talking in, um, everyone was talking in like data. Uh, it, it, it felt like him trying to make a, an emotional movie. Um, which I, I, I liked that he was stretching himself there. I think what the exposition lacks is the kind of pentameter that you have in, in, in Inception, where every bit of the exposition sounds like you're part of this world and it's particularly exciting. Whereas with this film, it seemed to be more settled and almost a bit calmer than in Inception, I think. But I think I've read a, I read a review that was criticizing the, the exposition and saying the scientists would not have to explain this to each other. But frankly, I'm not a scientist. So I don't have a clue about any of these things going in the movie. I might have read something, but I don't really know. So essentially, I think for the audience, you actually need to have these people discussing what they're going to do, why they're going to do it. So you understand the kind of the dynamics of the situation that they're going into. So I think the exposition is actually key to placing the audience right within these characters and within the story. So you have some inkling of what's going on. I think so to me, I have no problem with it whatsoever. I think it does lack the kind of, the beauty of kind of the way Joseph Gordon-Levitt gives it out in Inception, I think it's fantastic. But in this, I thought it was needed, so you understood the kind of what was going on, basically. So it was very important. So I had no problem with it whatsoever. Yeah, I would agree with Andrew. I mean, you've got Coop, who's a pilot and a navigator, and that is his job. And he's speaking with people who are experts in these various fields. And so I think he's the perfect surrogate for the audience to not really understand where that's coming from. I thought it worked fine. Yeah, I mean, I, maybe it's just me, but I, I, don't, I don't have the highest opinion of audience, the general audience uh, for films, unfortunately. And I, I, I do not like exposition at all. Like, I'm with Cal. Like, exposition just, like, drives me up the wall. And I'll never forget... In the Dark Knight Rises, that awful bit of exposition when Daggett's in the uh, in that uh, lift or whatever with uh, with Catwoman, and he's like, "You mean the clean slate where you put your name in, your date of birth, and everything just disappears?" Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, that that that's like the the worst example of Christopher Nolan exposition I can think of. But here's the thing: um, this stuff is like really complicated, as Andrew said. Like I don't, I don't know anything about it either. And but you know, unlike my friends who all gained physics degrees over the course of this weekend somehow, um, and found ways to criticize all of this, I, uh, I, I literally was clueless, and I was still—I'll be honest with you—I was still somewhat lost. Uh, even after seeing it a second time, there were occasionally little bits and pieces where I was like, "Well, I don't quite understand relativity at all, but I'll just go with it, whether it's realistic or not." And just that's—that's—that is the universe of this movie. At least that's the way I felt. About about it but uh, maybe harper felt differently no i really i i I'm kind of stuck with something you said cal and that 
it didn't necessarily bother you that much because you're very interested in it. And that's kind of how I felt too. Um, and, and like you said, Han, I think Cooper was a perfect surrogate for us and it made sense that they were explaining it. He would not know all of this. He, he might have a cursory, you know, haven't taken a course on, on relativity, re- relativity or something like that, but you know, he would definitely need to know these things. Um, the, the only part I thought where the, uh, the science felt sort of cooked up a little bit um, was the fact that they didn't think about, that the person that had landed on the water planet would have only been there for a few minutes in, in our time. Uh, like they should have known that going into it and not having this, sh- you know, if they got positive reactions from that person that landed the thumbs up signal or whatever, uh, that shouldn't have been like a confident landing. Like, Oh, it's definitely, is fine. She's been here for 30 seconds and says it's okay. So it must be great. <laughs> like that seemed, that was a little hard to believe that they wouldn't have expected that. But um, otherwise I thought the, the science and the storytelling actually blended in a way that was really nice. And it didn't seem like one or the other was, was the intention and the other was trying to catch up with it. They both actually kind of worked well, very much together. I think. Um, The other area that is a little alien, (laughs) no pun intended uh, for a Christopher Nolan movie is this sort of strain of humor. I mean, oftentimes his films, they have some humor in them and I I never want to call them humor less, but sometimes it's humor. That's just kind of under the cuff, maybe a little drier. Um, But this movie has not, not only like this sort of warm heart in the center of it, like this sort of sense of optimism, but it also is pretty darn funny. Uh, At least I think so. Uh, Bill Irwin as Tars being the uh, the prime mover of all things humor in his interactions with Matthew McConaughey. I'm kind of curious, Cal. Um, did was did Tars work for you, or do you think it sort of fell flat? No, actually, I liked the robots quite a bit. Um, I thought that at first I was a little bit surprised at um, the visual design for them, but over the course of the movie, I actually grew to grew to like them quite a bit, and. Uh, I thought both Tars and Case were quite funny. Um, Case had more of a drier humor, but um, yeah, overall, overall, uh, I don't think Nolan has deserves quite the reputation for humorlessness that um, he has. I mean, I'm thinking back to uh, Memento, even uh, that cut where. I'm chasing this guy and start shooting. No, he's chasing me. (laughs) (laughs) One of the funniest cuts, like one of the funniest edits I've seen in a long time. And uh, outside like Edgar Wright. And um, I I think the Nolan is humorless thing comes from people like Zack Snyder trying to interpret Nolan and being awful at it. (laughs) And, uh, so I would say Man of Steel was humorless and had a Nolan-ish aesthetic, but Nolan himself, I think, actually has a kind of, as you say, dry, but uh, definitely present sense of humor. And this movie tapped into it quite a bit. Yeah, and I think I think being a, the only Brit on the panel, we're very used to that dry sense of humor. So I laughed all the way through the film. Not literally, but I found myself just absolutely adoring those two robots. It was absolutely fantastic. So yeah, I don't I think the tag that no one gets at his films are solemn and humorless and have no emotion or heart. It's it's just not these aren't attributes that can be kind of given to him as a director or as a scriptwriter. I think he's it's not laugh out loud funny, but it is kind of it it appeals to the to the it appeals to us Brits, I think, because we in the theaters I was in, many, many people were laughing. Yeah, no no one was laughing at my showing except me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're 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 a grim bunch over here. At, uh, well, I mean we I, I had people yelling at the screen uh, in one of our oh, showings. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, it was it was a, our second screening was not such a hot experience. Um though it, the film itself was just fine. Um yeah, so I'm curious, Harper. Uh, do you think the this this newfound beating heart that uh, seems to have really been heightened worked for you as a part of this film, or do you think that maybe this isn't like Nolan's strength, or do you do you appreciate the attempt? Uh, I think there were parts that worked and parts that didn't quite so much for me. Um, I think overall it was very emotionally complex and it worked really well, um, particularly in the relationship between Murph and Cooper. Um, I found myself getting very worked up, you know, particularly after he comes back from the water planet and the 23 years have passed. I mean, that, that was, 
that was heartbreaking stuff. Um, and it was done really well. Um, and I think that's something he's gotten better at. Um, the, the only place where I think the, uh, emotional aspect of it sort of fell flat for me a little bit was, um, uh, when they're trying to decide which planet to go to next, uh, which is the infamous for me anyways, infamous, uh, follow our heart or follow our head, uh, conversation, which seems absolutely ludicrous for a couple of, uh, the last astronauts to ever leave the planet to be having, <laughs> um, that, that I thought was, was pretty ridiculous, even though of course it pays off in the end, which is, uh, you know, maybe a whole nother conversation, but, um, that seemed a little silly, but uh, otherwise I thought it was actually very emotionally satisfying and, and pretty, um, pretty heavy. I'll be honest. I don't think even an actress of Anne Hathaway's, um, the skill level can sell that love monologue. That's a, that's tough business. Yeah. I mean, what they were, there was something at the heart of what they were getting at, which is like, maybe there are unknown forces at work in the connections between people that we don't understand. And I could have bought her trying to play a scientific angle to that. Like, I think he's dead, but I still feel like I know there's something here and I can't explain why, but then introducing this idea of love kind of it like overplayed the hand and kind of messed that up. I think. I, 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 I think that scene is absolutely crucial. I think it's absolutely glorious. The moment she said that I just lost it and I was just floods of tears. So I think, I think cause brand is almost in there to show the kind of in- inconsistencies of the perceived value of science. So when science is brought into interaction with human beings, the, there's no kind of emotional consistency and, that is kind of, I love that speech because it kind of addressed the fact that perhaps there is a kind of almost paradoxically metaphysical nature of science to which we have to then kind of think, what do we not understand about ourselves and how can we reconcile that in a purely kind of dogmatic scientific basis? And the film almost concludes that we can't. So I think that that the beauty of that speech is it manages to bring in the kind of frailty of scientific kind of definitive scientific kind of idealism and kind of throws in the fact that actually we are pretty much defined as much by science as we are by our own kind of emotional fragility to me. So I absolutely adored that scene. I did. I thought it worked for me completely. Most critics have said the character of Brand is kind of a bit underplayed that Anne Hathaway doesn't get enough to do. But to me, her, that her mantra within that scene is kind of crucial to the overall scope and kind of effectiveness of the ideas that play in the whole film. That, it kind of leads me to a question that I, I'd like to maybe address to like Cal or Hannah. Um, you know, the female characters in this film, I mean, that's, that's like one of Brand's big moments is that speech. And that's one of her few big moments. Um, do you think the female characters got play i mean they tend to not in nolan movies i mean we hear the dead wife criticism quite often um but I, i'm curious uh do you think that this is another trope of his that he is trying to eliminate and has he done it successfully here or not um i don't think it was necessarily a gender issue but and not to make reference to pop culture this week i feel like there were too many cooks in terms of <laughs> how many characters there were in this film yeah. um it it you know, Anne Hathaway's character and Jessica Chastain's character got about as much screen time as anybody else who wasn't Matthew McConaughey. Um, Matthew McConaughey was a fully fleshed out character relative to everyone else. Even him, you know, a lot of it was just due to Matthew McConaughey's, you know, kind of supernatural acting skills that he was able to make that feel like a fully formed character. Um, but everyone else, I feel, I feel like was underserved. And I I think that's because the the stack of characters was too big. I think Casey Affleck's character could have been completely in, eliminated with just rewriting a little bit of that script. They could have made it work just having her be an only child and get more screen time with Jessica Chastain. Um, I think Wes Bet- Bentley's astronaut could have been eliminated completely with very little effect on the end results. So I think, I think they could have pared down that cast a little bit um, to give more weight to the characters we did spend time with. Yeah, I mean, I think there was some purposeful commentary by Nolan on gender, uh, on some gender things, because I know he has gotten a lot of criticism for that. The tropes, uh, both with Brand and with uh, uh, Murph, actually, both fit very well into Nolan's, uh, like, 
one of two female archetypes he tends to have in his movies, uh, many of which are about a, a guy with a very distant relationship to a woman who is trying one way or another to reclaim or fix that relationship. And I mean, that's the heart of this movie. But um, I think for me, the important thing was having both of them together worked really well for me. Uh, having Brand be present on the adventure while Chastain, while Murph was present uh, on Earth, kind of split that character into two and let us see both uh, Brand as someone who's actively questing for what she wants and Murph as someone who began the film more as an object for McConaughey to uh, miss and pine over and became something more important, kind of overcame that as it went. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's always the tendency to, with with, with sci-fi and space travel, read, uh, read a lot into the design of things. So... Uh, I actually had read an article earlier today uh, talking about how this was uh, the, the someone called the interstellar, the death of the penis. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. I mean, they, they, they have the, uh, their, their ring ship instead of the traditional giant phallic rocket uh, in order to pass by the black hole in order to pass through the black hole and um, uh, get back to get back to um the planet where they can have uh, the inha- the habitable planet. Sorry, uh, they have to shed their two phallic rockets and throw them away, uh, and that includes all the male characters who are on the adventure. <laughs> um, uh, even even back on Earth, uh, the question isn't can we go to space. It's how can we go to space outside of this giant phallic rocket? They need to build something that can hold uh, hundreds of people that can sustain life rather than something that's just meant to penetrate that sweet, sweet virginal land. (laughs) I also really appreciate that there was no romance between Coop and Brand because Mm -hmm. that was something they, they resisted a temptation to go there. Jonathan Nolan had a romance in their original script. They hooked up. It was ridiculous. Um, and I, I think that would have kind of ruined that momentum they had with the female characters if if Coop, you know, if every female was just an attachment for him. Um, super glad they dodged that bullet. Yeah, we had a whole conversation uh, yesterday, last night, about blockbusters and their need to in, in, install romances. Invent a, a quickly developed romance that suddenly means everything. Yeah, you know? it becomes like the plot driver for our our, cent, our man that's at the center of the universe, generally. Mm-hmm. And um, so it, it's appreciated to see a movie like this. And I think our other examples where there weren't romances were like The Winter Soldier and The Avengers and a few other Thor movies. was the worst yeah. quick big romance <laughs> I've ever seen. But. <laughs> yeah. uh, so um, anyway, let's move into the fifth dimension here. Here while we still have some time um basically the third act of this movie kind of introduces what some people consider a deus ex machina uh, and i can see why you would consider it that but it's also uh some have argued that it's like central to the theme of humanity will find a way well by god they sure did uh they found a way <laughs> that's maybe not necessarily fully explained um i'm curious um the resolution to this whole ghost plot uh being this deus ex machina harper did you find that satisfying at all i i actually did i liked it quite a bit um i think that's one of the things that nolan proved with inception that he's exceptionally good at is um is visually portraying really really complex abstract concepts um and i think that this was absolutely gorgeous um it was a really interesting idea, I think. I mean, it was maybe a little bit uh, uh, predictable. I think there was a certain point where everybody more or less kind of gets the idea that he's going to – there's so much time time travel kind of involved and, you know, that ghost is unexplained. And uh, there's a certain point where everybody sort of realizes that he's going to be the one to kind of cause his own action in some way. Um, but uh, I think just the way it was visually represented, I think the fact that Tars was there with him is really interesting and might deserve some uh, some – analysis in some way um uh was just it was kind of breathtaking for me um it's a really interesting concept that is not that far out of line with some some uh you know modern scientific theories and things like that uh and visually it was just so amazing that i I can't really fault it for for very much outside of that 
How about you, Andrew? Um, I, I I loved it. I thought, do you know the opening bit when the when they first work out that the coordinates to the NASA underground station has been has come from these people, and they just kind of arrived there. When I first saw the movie, I was sat there thinking, this is absolutely ridiculous. Where are you taking this? this is, I just I'm just don't buy this at all. But once that's reconciled by the ending of the movie, it then almost becomes a when you watch it again, it's almost a logical progression. It's quite organic. So I think the first part of the movie doesn't actually work unless you have this coder at the end that kind of explains why and how that original um, gravitational pull or shift or whatever the hell is going on is able to happen. So when I first thought, I thought, what is going on? Someone's communicating to a who? What is going This is ridiculous. But then with that ending, it kind of, it makes you look at the first half of the movie again, similar in a way to kind of Memento or Inception. You kind of, when you rewatch it, it kind of adds so much to that first segment of the movie that I just think it's absolutely, I thought it was fantastic. And, all, and it is a little bit smaltzy, but I think in a story that essentially is defined by uh, Murph and Mackenzie Foy and Jessica Chastain, I think it's essential that that relationship is able to be reconciled by this kind of superfluous, a bit out there kind of ending. So I, I thought it was absolutely fantastic, to be fair. So Cal, are, are you uh, pro-fifth dimension or anti-fifth dimension? This seems to be like the dividing line for a lot of people. <laughs> I'm kind of in the middle. Uh, I loved it conceptually. Um, I, 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 I knew that was... I knew the twist was going to be that McConaughey was sending the messages to her, to himself and his daughter uh, the whole time because narratively there just wasn't anything else that makes sense uh, in a time travel story. And also because, uh, of all things, Insidious recently did that exact same twist. <laughs> um, uh, except with ghosts rather than... Um, <laughs> Uh, rather than fifth dimensional beings, although for all the difference there is. But even even though I, I, I thought it was a little predictable and even though I thought that it was sometimes a little bit overblown, uh, I don't think it was as tightly edited as Inception, say, uh, in bringing, those, bringing the kind of fifth dimensional archive of the library uh, and modern day together. I still liked it a lot. Um, conceptually i loved it visually i i loved it uh, i was really really interesting really well done and also it it fit with the theme of exploration being its own reward almost um th- this is this is they're, they're the best they're the best of humanity they're the inadvertent reward for continuing to push the boundaries of what we understand and what we can do um and i I thought that that was a really kind of sweet natured way of sweet natured way of of saying that of doing that i i I, yeah so it, it came together for me really well and even though it might break the kind of hard science aesthetic that some people wanted uh i think that it was it was essential to nolan making this his uh emotional heartfelt movie Y'all know I'm a sucker for a paradox, whether it makes sense or whether it's too schmaltzy or not. If you give me a paradox, I'm probably going to love it. And uh, so I was a big fan of this circular sort of storytelling. I mean, it, and in, in a second viewing, I didn't even like recognize the, the crashing of the jet. But uh, and then they explain that away as like the gravity beings, the fifth dimensional beings, whatever, actually causing that wreck. So in reality, uh, he or they may have set him on that course from the very beginning, which I yeah. which I liked a lot. Um, it's, a, it's sort of a you know cleverness in storytelling. Whether you know as long as you buy into the idea that you know there's this fifth dimensional tesseract sitting in the middle of uh, of, of uncharted space. Um, so let me ask a question uh, that's a little broader. Why is this movie so divisive? I mean, we're we're seeing. Uh, you know, lower cinema score ratings for this thing. It's not underperforming necessarily. It's doing well foreign foreign box office wise, but domestically, it's 
only you know it's only it just barely scraped by fifty million, so it puts it number two here in the U.S. behind uh, Big Hero Six, which maybe is to be expected. Um, so, what is it about this movie that's uh, that that that's uh, dividing audiences? Uh, Hannah, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, I think it's just one of those things where it's it's some really big ideas. Uh, it, you know, we were talking about this movie after we walked out of it, and. I think what we've come to expect from movies is for them to either cut things off kind of early with something ambiguous or to, to do just a little bit. Like there were four points in this movie where I thought it was going to be over, but then it kept going, but not in a bad way, like Lord of the Rings where I wanted it to be over and thought it was over and then it wasn't, <laughs> but in a, in a good way where I was like, really, they're going to keep going. They're going to give us more answers and more answers and more answers. Um, we've become almost trained to not really expect that and to think, you know, think higher of movies that, that do just kind of take the easy way out and say, who knows what happened? You know, they did this thing and, and then you see one image and that's it. Who knows? And I think this movie was, it kind of, it was a pioneer in that it tried to answer so many questions. And when you raise so many questions and you, and you answer so many questions, you take a risk that people are going to be unhappy with those answers. I think for me, the key thing is it's kind of, for me, there were times when I was watching this movie with the whole kind of hands and organs exploding out of the speakers and the kind of the almost quietness of space. And I was sat there thinking, I can't believe that two major studios have let you do this. You know, I, I, there were times when I felt, especially when they just leave Earth, I, I mean, it was, it was almost like watching a more kind of art house film. So I think because it's not grounded in all the things that, maybe mainstream audiences associate with Christopher Nolan in terms of big action kind of with the Batman trilogy and everything like that. I think it's such a departure. There's no guns. There's no, it's all about thought. It's all about kind of family that people might haven't got what they expected from this movie. I think, whereas for me, it's sort of, it's the first Christopher Nolan movie that is kind of so expansive and so big in scope that I think sometimes that can lead audiences to think, well, maybe this isn't what we expected. But to me, I mean, it's just wonderful. I, I, I actually ag- agree with both of you. I think audiences, it's a, it, I think there's a weird kind of paradox in the way that we're trained to want things, which is we want to be given what we know we want. Um, you know, we we have these preconceived ideas of what a big budget sci-fi movie should look like. And it's, you know, an action driven movie. You want action beats here, 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 and here. Uh, You know, the love interest, you want all these things. And Nolan basically made like a $200, $200 million indie. Yes. And that was always going to alienate some people. Uh, Because, again, you want what you want. But on the other hand, you don't fall in love with what you know you want. Um, If if something doesn't surprise you and push you to think about the world in a new way and push you to really consider something, you aren't going to fall in love with it. And so I almost feel like Interstellar is going to be, uh, of all of Nolan's movies and um, probably of all the big-budget movies released this year, it's going to be the movie that ends up having a very dedicated, very passionate fan base that absolutely falls in love with it, with, with science, with exploration, with movie making, with whatever. And everyone else is going to be uh, from ranging from so-so to whatever on it. But I don't think that's a bad thing that audiences aren't in love with this. Um, it's not like if this was the highest budget or the the uh, biggest blockbuster of the year, the studios wouldn't take away. Oh, we should have more thoughtful sci-fi movies. Uh, we should have more thoughtful big-budget movies without a true antagonist. They would take away fifth-dimensional beings. What if they were evil? <laughs> yeah, and the, I think the other key thing is one of my friends mentioned the fact that they thought it seemed a bit like Michael Bay's Armageddon in the trailers. And at that point, I'm sorry if you wanted big dumb horribly bad science fiction film with a romantic element, then go and watch Armageddon, frankly. Sit with Michael Bay and enjoy that movie because this is the polar opposite of something like that. So, yeah, I, I think it's fantastic. 
Well, uh-huh. yeah, there, that's. Uh, sorry, I was just going to say, Kyle, that uh, that that goes very much towards your uh, low opinion of the audience, right there. That anybody could watch <laughs> any of those trailers and think Armageddon. With uh, you know, this is a trailer. The teaser, anyways, is is Matthew McConaughey crying. While there's uh, while there's narration about you know the history of mankind, <laughs> I don't know how far away from Armageddon you were getting. Yes, Parker, I'll give you the last word on this question before I ask the last question of the uh, podcast. Okay, um, yeah, I, I mean, I guess I can see that it's it's divisive just because it is like you guys have said it's a really bold direction. Um, it's it, it is much more. Not to say that his other movies aren't intelligent, but this is a movie that's about, I think, at its core philosophy and ideas more than about um, action and, and these big uh, set pieces and things like that. But it does surprise me a little bit because I don't think this is that far from a movie like Inception that is so heavily um, uh, indebted to its concept that's a really complicated concept. Um, but it's still Interstellar is still loaded with some of the better, actually probably some of the best action I've seen this year. Uh, I mean, like like we talked about the the docking sequence being really intense, and uh, I mean, I think that I don't think that's the only spot. I think there are a lot of places where it's it's pretty um, pretty interesting from an action point of view too. So I, I don't know maybe if it's just how long it is or just that it's uh, maybe some of it goes over some people's heads, but it is a little surprising to me that it's not. Um, critically doing as well as I, as, as I feel about it anyways. All right. So the last question I have for you then is in Nolan's overall filmography, where would you rank interstellar? And that's going to, I'm going to ask the whole panel this one. Um, you, you don't have to give me the whole countdown or anything, but you know, if uh, just sort of a, a general idea of whereabouts it would be in the nine films and, uh, you know, especially I'm kind of curious what your top one would be as well. So Hannah, ladies first. For me, this would be a a close number two behind Inception. Um, We saw it twice because I wasn't sure. Inception, I kind of grew to love it more and more the more I thought about it. And I wasn't sure if Interstellar would be the same way. And maybe it will be. Maybe one day it will surpass um, Inception. But for now, I feel pretty comfortable saying that Inception is my favorite Nolan movie. Cal? Um, pretty middle of the road for me. Um, I like it more than, uh, say the dark Knight rises by quite a bit, um, more than Batman begins, but, uh, at least on first viewing, it isn't for me a stone cold classic, like his top three, um, dark Knight, memento and inception. Uh, and that could change, uh, quite a bit. Um, that could change over multiple viewings or as I've thought about it more, but yeah, first, first impression, I would put it middle of the road for Nolan. It, it tried new things, which I love. It had him expanding as a filmmaker, which I really respect, but I don't know that it worked for me entirely. Harper. Uh, well, I, uh, I walked out of the theater just kind of, totally awestruck and, and ready to, to call it like the best movie I've ever seen, which I know is not, not going to be true uh, with further, further viewings. That was just kind of my initial kind of blown away reaction. Um, but I think right now uh, the dark Knight is one of my favorite movies of all time uh, without question. And I, I think interstellar's at least tied with it at this point um, for, for me as my favorite Nolan movie with uh, inception coming pretty close behind that. And Andrew, I would put this number number two. I'm going to sit on the fence. It's going to be number two or number three behind Inception and The Dark Knight Rises. So I'll put it at number. Can I put it at joint number two? Right. <laughs> None of you guys like the Prestige, huh? Ugh. Oh, I love it. Heathens. Heathens, all it. of you. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I, I safely put this at number three right now. Um, it'll, it'll either go up or go down. I'm not really sure, but it's behind, uh, inception and memento for me, um, with, uh, surrounded by, uh, the prestige and the dark Knights. So as the sort of the five essential Nolan films. All right. So, uh, we are past the hour. Um, I'll just ask this. Does anyone have any closing thoughts before we, we roll things out? Harper or anything, any last words? Uh, just no, just that I, I'm really happy with the film. It was it was exciting and uh, and interesting and provokes a lot of discussion, which I think draws comparisons to a movie that nobody will like me making comparisons to, which is uh, uh, Prometheus. 
and that I think it's a movie that people will be talking about for a long time, whether they liked it or not, uh, which is always a good thing for me. Uh, so I loved it. I can't wait to go see it again. Um, yeah, it lived up to my expectations. Uh, Cal. I want to hear Cal why you didn't like it. Oh, all right. So well, I keep getting good impressions, but your your summary. Actually, yeah. yeah. Bring it on, Cal. I mean, I, I, well, I mean, keep in mind when I when I gave it that uh, fourth rating, I also called the top three instant classics. Um, so I mean, saying it's number four isn't exactly uh, isn't exactly damning it with faint praise here. I think that it felt um, it, it's going to be hard because I did like it quite a bit. I think that um, it felt like it should have been about four different movies. Um, it, there were parts of the movie that felt extremely rushed. There were parts that felt um, slightly undercooked. Uh, the editing was off, which is weird for me in a Nolan movie because I'm so used to uh, immaculate editing. But things like um, their time on the water planet, where they were they supposedly spent three hours. The editing made it seem like they spent maybe uh, nine or ten minutes there. Yeah, and yeah. That, uh, uh, that was a bit off for me. Um, as I mentioned, the climax, the time in the uh, – uh, in the um, I'm blanking on the name – in the Infinite Library, the Tesseract. Um, the time there, the editing felt really weird to me in a way that um, – uh, again, going back to Inception, the editing, uh, the cutting together of like the four different uh, layers was uh, some of the best editing I've ever seen in combining these action sequences. And uh, Interstellar, the editing didn't quite come together. And uh, as as Hannah, I think, said earlier, it felt like there were too many characters and too little for half of them to do. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, very good, but I, I think it could have been either tighter or bigger. Andrew, last last word before we close out. For me, any movie that addresses the paradox between dogmatic definitive science and the fairly an emotion of human beings is up there. And when Christopher Nolan does it with scope and scale and those glorious images and music and I just thought it was absolutely Perfect. Sorry, I shouldn't say that. No, it was not perfect, but I absolutely adored this movie. It's fantastic. Well, and I and I will say that uh, there's someone wrote somewhere, and I don't know who this person was. They said that uh, Interstellar, uh, you know, whatever science flaws it may have, is still a better Stephen Hawking movie than The Theory of Everything. Mm -hmm. And Harper and I, having seen it, uh, I think we can concur on that point, sir. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to wrap here. Uh, thank you so much, guys. You can see Interstellar uh, in theaters near you. Uh, go see it in IMAX, uh, the biggest screen possible if you can. And hopefully the guy running the projection booth is, knows how to run the sound as well. But uh, anyway, uh, check it out. Uh, it could use your help. All right. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thank you. With a network of wormholes, you might emerge somewhere else in space. Somewhere else in time. The sky calls to us. We do not destroy ourselves.